Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. I love that picture, running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have, yet to I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he said these things to her. Let's pray as we consider God's word this morning. Lord, we're just thankful for the resurrection of Jesus. And as we uh, consider your resurrection, Jesus, and what that means for us and what it means with regards to you and what your word tells us about it this morning, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts. You would open our minds to see you, Jesus. You would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts, Lord, that, that our hearts would comprehend, Lord, that we just wouldn't take in information today, but that we would be transformed by that which we hear. And so, Lord, may your word uh, be blessed. Uh, God, may you uh, open, open our eyes and ears to see the wonderful things that are in your law, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll just read this portion of Scripture now too, okay? Verses 1 through 9. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Uh, the Corinthian church to whom Paul writes, like us, believed in the resurrection of the dead. The problem was that um, in their culture, in the world that they were living in, with the influence of Greek philosophy, their concepts of death and life after death and resurrection had been twisted. And you know, it's kind of interesting if you think about it. If you like walked out of our church this morning, you went up 
to Mike's place and got yourself a gelato and wandered around and got into some conversations around Laura Gibson's and you asked people their concepts of death, of life after death, what happens after you die. You'd like, you'd hear all sorts of responses, all sorts of opinions, all sorts of thoughts and it would just span the gamut of belief. You know, if you are interested in, in starting spiritual conversations with people, just a great question is to ask this. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? And it just opens the door, right? It's like, okay, here it comes. Let's see what comes out of their mouth. Now, people have all sorts of things that they believe in. The Greeks were, they were no different to whom, whom Paul's writing here. And what they believed was popularized by the philosophy of the day. They had... They had the, the influence of Stoicism that, that taught that the soul of a person merged with deity at death. And we have people who believe that today. That's, that's what they hope to. They, 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 the truth they hold to. That they believe that, that the personality of, your personality when you die just kind of molds into whatever deity exists in the afterlife. And then you're just kind of, yeah, you're just kind of like assimilated and... That's it. So the idea of resurrection doesn't really matter. The Greeks had Epicurean philosophy, which was, you know, really materialistic and about the physical world and about eat, drink, and be merry. And, and they believed that there was no existence of life after death. So then it's like, you know, it's like party hard, man. <laughs> 420. And um, live it up hard. And then, and then you had the philosophy of Plato that taught the soul was immortal and believed in kind of this concept of like a transmigration or um, a reincarnation where your soul, when you die, your soul passes into some other physical form, another body, and you're reincarnated and somehow you come back or whatever it is. In fact, you know, when you read the book of Acts and Paul goes to the city of Athens and he goes to Mars Hill, which was the center of philosophical thinking and intelligentsia of the day, and he begins to preach the gospel and he preaches that Jesus was raised from the dead, they laughed at him. They're like, the resurrection of the dead, what are you talking about? And it's interesting that, that that's the culture that, that Paul was ministering to. That's the culture we minister to. It's like resurrection of the dead. What, what, what is that, you know? And you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then still be confused about what that means, what that means for you. Some Corinthians believed, oh, well, the flesh is evil. You know, they, they believed that the soul endured the grave, but they didn't believe in a literal resurrection. And what I want to tell you is the scripture teaches that there is a literal resurrection. When Jesus was buried in that tomb, after he died on the cross, he physically rose from the dead in that same body, except that body was transformed. And here's the thing, church. We are going to participate in that same sort of resurrection. We're going to follow the pattern of Jesus. We're going to be raised from the dead should he tarry and not come back to get us. And so when Paul um, writes to this church, he's giving a, a biblical answer about this question. What do we believe about life after death? Or what do we believe about the resurrection of the dead? And there is a physical resurrection of the dead. That's what I want you to know this morning. There is. For those who have heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scripture teaches us this, that if I am absent from this body, I am present with the Lord. I leave this body, if I believe in Jesus, my faith is in him. I leave this body and instantly I am ushered into his present. His presence. But the Lord also has plans for this mortal body and his scripture says that it's going to be raised immortal. When I die physically... My, my soul, my spirit is going to, spiritual mat is going to separate from physical mat. And spiritual mat's going to go be with Jesus. But then the time is going to come when Jesus is going to raise physical mat and he's going to put the two back together. And I'll be raised from the dead. You'll be raised from the dead. 
If you believe in Jesus Christ, raised to immortality, God will breathe life into our physical frames and our bodies and we will participate in the resurrection of the dead. Now check out what Paul says here again in verse one. Now I'd remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, when, when Paul talks about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel in church, go, gospel means what? What does it mean? It means good news. That's right. Whatever you think, gospel rock means good news rock. Gospel, gospel means good news. And our good news is very specific. The scripture defines for us exactly what it is. It's a biblical gospel that we believe in. And there's many beliefs out there. When we talk about what people believe with regards to death and life and, and afterlife, there's lots of beliefs out there that don't lack substance. It's all fluff. It's all like, well, on what do you base that opinion? It's just like, it's nothing more than opinion. You can't sink your teeth into anything, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has substance to it. It's like, you can bite it. You can sink your teeth into it. And it's, it's not a, it's not mishmash gops, gospel. It's not, it's not new age gospel. And, and there's lots of beliefs and teachings out there that have the appearance of good news, but our gospel is good news. And I want us to get that this morning. It's good news and it's specifically good news for sinners. For those who recognize that they've fallen short of the glory of God. And our gospel is this. Our good news is this. That Jesus died for our sins. That Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sins. And he died, but not only did he die, he was taken down from that cross and he was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And the scripture tells us that this happened because God loves us. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and the Lord uses the cross, the work of the cross, which is the power of God to blot out my sin, to blot out my transgression, for it to be covered in the blood of Jesus if I will confess my need for him and, and repent of sin and confess Jesus as Lord. The Lord says this, I'll remember your sin no more. You'd be my child. And the resurrection, which is part of the gospel, which we're celebrating this morning, is the proof of purchase. It's the bill of sale. It's the receipt that the work of the cross has been applied. Um, Jesus told uh, Martha, as they stood outside Lazarus' tomb, he said this to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now Paul says this to this church in Corinth. He says, this is the gospel that you received. You accepted it. It was proclaimed to you. It was taught to you. You stand in it. By this gospel, you are being saved. This gospel is applied to your past. This gospel is applied to your present life. It's going to be applied to your future. And you need to hold fast to this gospel. And he actually gives a warning that you can let go of the gospel. He, he says if, if you hold, if you let go in vain, then the previous beliefs that you had, they're not going to do you any value. You, it's as if you believed in vain. And the proof of the reality of the gospel in your life is this, is that you hold on. You don't let go to these facts. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And you hold on to that church. We cling to that. And in the midst of the confusion regarding the resurrection that was in the Corinthian church, and maybe I would say with regards to the confusion that's in our culture, Paul is going to give this church evidence of the resurrection. He's like, let's talk evidence. Let's just eliminate the confusion. Let's talk about the reality of the resurrection 
And the first thing that you see in these couple verses that Paul gives for evidence of, of the gospel, it's going to come up on the screen, is this, the evidence of transformed lives. Boy, man, if we went around the room this morning, you know, I just could pull you. I wish we had time to do this. I wish we could, we could go around the room and say, tell me, how has Jesus transformed your life? The testimonies in here would be like, they'd be out of this world. Like, how many of you can testify, maybe just with a raised hand, Jesus has transformed my life. Knowing Jesus has changed my life. Now, there, there it is. There is evidence of the gospel, the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. Transformed lives. And Paul tells his church, your, your lives, the fact that you're holding on to this truth is evidence of the reality of the gospel. Jesus saves sinners and transformed lives prove it. You can't, yeah, I can't explain to you what, how else my life got transformed. I've like experienced physical healings. I've experienced changes in my thinking. I've experienced freedom from sin. I've experienced changes in my relationship. I like forgive people that don't for deserve my forgiveness. I mean, Jesus transforms us. You can't explain it unless the gospel's like true. Then Paul says this. He gives some other examples. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul lists these facts about the gospel. He says they're facts, and he says basically this. He wants us to know that these things are indisputable, that these are truths for us as Christians that are like undeniable, irrefutable, incontestable, you know, without doubt, airtight. You can lock this stuff down if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. This is the stuff we hold to right here. That which is on the screen. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And so if Paul says transformed lives are the first evidence, he says the second evidence is this. God's word, the scripture. That's what the reference he gives here. He says these things that were on the screen a moment ago were foretold in the scripture that they would happen. I mean, does the, does the Bible tell us about the burial and the death and the resurrection of Jesus before it happened? Yeah, man, if you were, if you were with us on Friday, I taught Psalm 22 on Friday. It's astounding. It like blows your mind that David gave this prophetic word a thousand years before Jesus, 800 years before the invention of crucifixion by the Romans, David describes the crucifixion of Jesus. It's like you can't know that unless the Spirit of God revealed it. Christ died for our sins. The Bible's full of it. Like from the book of Genesis all the way through, that, that picture of substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world fills the scripture. Leviticus tells us that life is in the blood, so blood has to be shed for forgiveness to happen. There were sacrifices made for, for sinners throughout the Old Testament. Blood was shed for the covering of sin. We call that atonement. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system points to Jesus. Jesus is prefigured in everything that happens. Every burnt offering, every sacrifice, he's in there. You just have to learn to look for him. Passover. You know, if I was to give you some scriptures, I'll give you, I'll, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. I'll give you some to go check out. Check out Isaiah 25. Check out Isaiah 53. How about Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110. Go to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 and tell me Jesus is not present in that text. He's all over it. He's all over it. How about the story of Jonah? Jesus took the story of Jonah and he said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and then he'll be raised from the dead. Isaiah proclaimed that, that the Messiah would make his grave uh, 
with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified between two wicked men. And then he was taken down and he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. How about the offering of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 and how Abraham, the scripture says, Abraham received Isaac back from the dead. Bible tells us that God did not spare his own son, but freely offered him for us all, and then he raised him to life. And the more you dig into the Old Testament, the more you see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And from, from the Old Testament scriptures, we can see that they foretold that the Messiah, God's anointed, would die that he would be buried and that he would be resurrected from the dead. Then, then you turn the pages of your Bible to what we call the New Testament. We read in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John who recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and all the facts therein. Buried in a tomb. Or Sorry, Death on a cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the dead. That's the scriptural Jesus that the apostles taught. And we need as a church to be scriptural. To be biblical with regards to what the word of God proclaims and teaches about Jesus. You know again if you walked out the door this morning with your ice cream cone. And you said who's Jesus to people? What kind of answers would you get? All over the map you know. People would say things, well, I don't really believe that he died. You know, there are those who say, well, I think he just kind of swooned and the disciples were mistaken when they buried him. And then, you know, he's like, let me out of here. And, you know, he didn't really die. Or they would say, you know, well, maybe his body was stolen from that tomb. Or there are those who say, well, his resurrection, it wasn't physical. It was just spiritual in its nature. He wasn't, he wasn't raised to immortality. Or the body that he was raised in was not the same body that died. He rose as, a, I don't know, a spirit creature. And all these things people give to deny the physical resurrection or to deny the work of the cross. Well, you know, I don't, I mean, how could he really be God? Maybe he's more like a small g God, kind of like us. This man, he realized the divinity within him. He woke a Christ consciousness, claiming that he was God when, I don't know. They have all sorts of answers. We have to be scriptural about our Jesus. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And Paul says, that is good news. That is good news for sinners. Christ died so that we can live. And his, his resurrection from the dead is, is proof of the transaction of the cross. The soldier put his spear into Jesus' side. His back was flogged. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. The nails were driven through his hands. The nail was driven through his feet. And the scripture tells us that even his resurrected body bears the marks of these wounds. Thomas, look at my hands and feet. Touch me and see it as I myself. It's not a ghost. Ghost doesn't have flesh and blood as you see I have. Touch. Flesh and bone as you see I have. Touch. Touch me and see. In regards to his burial... He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the tomb was sealed by the seal of Rome. And to make that tomb secure, because there was fear uh, from Jesus' enemies that his disciples would come and steal his body because the Pharisees knew that Jesus had proclaimed and he had taught that he would rise from the dead. So there was fear that, that this lie would be propagated and that the disciples would steal the body, and so in front of the tomb, they placed a guard of Roman soldiers. That's 50 soldiers. 50. When's the last time you saw 50 Canadian soldiers anywhere? There's 50 Roman soldiers in front of this tomb. And, and here's the thing. These guys are not reserves. These aren't like auxil auxiliaries. Oh, let's like, can you get that guy a pair of shoes, man? He needs something there so he looks legit. These are like, these guys are legit. These are battle-hardened 
Roman soldiers, like special guards. I don't know what that means. Navy, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, whatever it is. But let me tell you what Roman law was. Roman law was this. If they failed at the task, they were put to death. And it wasn't one individual who would be put to death. The whole guard of 50 soldiers would die if they failed on their mission to guard the tomb. The seal on the tomb, law was this. If, if a Roman seal was broken that had sealed a tomb like this, they would do an investigation and they would go in search of who broke the seal. And law was this. If you could produce the person who broke the seal, you were to take him and you were to crucify him upside down. But it gets worse. Because if they said, oh yeah, so-and-so did it, but then so-and-so went on the run and he got away, the Romans would go to their village, they would take the whole village and crucify the entire community upside down. That was Roman law. I'm not pulling your leg. No one stole this body is what I want you to know. No one stole the body of Jesus. There are more people looking for that body than for Jimmy Hoffa. You know, the, the, the Pharisees, the Romans, they were looking for that body. People are still looking for that body. They won't find it. You should just read the Bible. You know, if anyone could produce that body, they would have produced that body. But instead, all there is is an empty tomb. Still to this day. You know, still to this day, it's like, just produce a body, and all of Christianity collapses. Produce a body. But there's nothing but an empty tomb. He was raised from the dead. We were, we were at the garden tomb last year, our trip to Israel, around this time last year. Actually, came, we, we got back the Thursday before Good Friday, so it was a year ago. And, you know, the, the, the tomb is like a really beautiful garden. And the place of the skull is there and you can identify it and see it. But beyond that, there's like not much to see. You like, you stick your head in there and you're like, it's empty. Yeah, it's empty. <laughs> That's it. Well, okay, I guess this is a good place to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper. But there's nothing to see. There's actually nothing to see because the tomb is empty. And so Paul says this, he says, the, the scriptures are evidence of the resurrection of the dead. The scriptures give evidence to us of Jesus' crucifixion. The scriptures give evidence to us of his death, prophe prophesying these things and telling them. And the scriptures give evidence to his resurrection from the dead. So Paul gives us two evidences. So you, got, you got your transformed lives and you got the scriptures that tell us these things would happen. But then he gives a third, a third thing that testifies to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And that was the witnesses who saw him after he was raised from the dead. They tell us the reality of the gospel. And the first one, Paul tells us, is that Jesus appeared to Cephas, Kepha, Peter, Simon Peter. The gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John actually don't recount the personal meeting of Jesus with Peter, we were talking about this at the uh, Gospel Rock this morning because I actually think that Peter's personal encounter with Jesus was so personal because he had betrayed Jesus so deeply that the scripture says, hey man, this is like private. It'd be like me airing my dirtiest stuff that's between me and Jesus and how he's healed and worked in my heart that way and your dirtiest stuff. It's like, no, you know, what happened between me and Peter is just so private. It's so deep. It's so powerful. We're going to leave it between us. But we get hints. We, we read about Jesus appearing to the 12 and coming to meet, to meet Peter at, at the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, it's amazing that when we read the, when we read the account of the resurrection, Though we don't get the details, we see that Peter runs to the tomb. Like I pointed out, Peter and John just ran to the tomb. Mary Magdalene on the morning of the resurrection met Jesus. And then she told Peter and John and they ran there. And you may recall that the first thing that Mary Magdalene thought that was that Jesus was the gardener. And she said, if you've moved his body, just tell me where it is. And then Jesus said her name, Mary. 
And then she knew it was Jesus, and Jesus directed her, go and tell the disciples. But specifically, he pointed out Peter. He said, I want you to tell Peter. You go to Peter, and you make sure that one who's betrayed me the worst knows I'm alive, and I'm going to meet him. Out of the 12, I mean, like I said, I guess I would say besides Judas, of course, no one felt worse about their betrayal than Judas. Actually, I think Judas just felt sorry for himself. So he took his life. But Peter truly felt, felt the depth of his betrayal. Can you imagine that night, the night he betrayed him, when their eyes met, you know? And just how that went into the soul of Peter. And so somewhere on that resurrection Sunday in the timeline, while everyone's going to and from the garden, and Peter's going there, Peter ran into Jesus, and they had their meeting it's interesting, the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel. Gospel tells Mark. He reports to Mark, and Mark writes it. And even that gospel doesn't tell us that story. So Peter's an example. But Paul also says this. Then there's the 12. Of course, Judas is gone. It's the 11. But by, by name, it was the group of 12. And they're... There are 11 men who turned the world upside down because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if there's like 11 people that could have gone on the run, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, it would have been these guys, but they stuck to him. In fact, all of them, minus the apostle John, died as martyrs for their faith, uh, suffering terribly, for the sake of Jesus because they were not going to let go of the gospel that Paul is telling us about here. Verse 6 says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Is that crazy? 500 people at one time saw Jesus raised from the dead. I imagine that happened in the region of the Galilee. And it's interesting that Corinthians here, this is written 30 years later, and Paul says this, most of those 500, they're still alive. That's what he says. Some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive, the 500 that saw him. Now you stop and you think about that. It's like, if you commit a crime, let's say you like do something terrible, murder, and there's two or three witnesses, and they see that, and it goes to a court of law, and those two or three witnesses give testimony what's going to happen to you. You are going to jail. Just on the word of two or three mis- uh, witnesses, Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, and 30 years later, most of them were still alive. That's why the gospel went like wildfire when he was raised from the dead. And so when we, when we think about that, it's like, wow, it's like the evidence for the resurrection is unbelievable. It's really indisputable. It can't be, you can take it to a court of law. You can't, you can't take it down. And of the 500, Paul says most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. I like that. They're not dead because in the New Testament, God's people, once you come to faith in Jesus, you don't die. You, you fall asleep and you'll be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be raised from the dead. Verse 7, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James. That's not James, one of the disciples. That's James, the brother of Jesus. They had the same mom, different dads, because Jesus was born of a virgin. And, and John chapter 7 tells us about Jesus' relationship with his half-siblings, that they didn't believe in him. There was a time when Jesus declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. And, and John chapter 7, as we're going to see in the weeks to come here, as we're going through the gospel of John on Sundays, that Jesus made himself equal with God by calling himself Lord of the Sabbath. And they came to lay hold of him because they said he's out of his mind. He's, he's lost it. He's gone nuts. So when Jesus rises from the dead, he goes and he seeks out his half-brother James. And it's hard to imagine what that scene would have been like. James discovers that his brother is God. All, after everything he's been teaching for all these years, James comes to recognize that it's true. What was that like? And how would a James felt? Like about that big, you would think. But what happened? 
while James went on to become a powerful minister of the gospel, he wrote the book of James that we have in our Bibles. It's interesting that James is the one who talks about the tongue because obviously he'd been running his mouth for a long time about his brother. And then he learned, wow, he is who he said he is. You, you know, we should learn to control our tongue. Isn't it amazing that James is the one who preaches that message? That the tongue is the only muscle in the body that comes with its own cage? And you imagine that meeting between James and Jesus, and then you realize that, that James went on to be one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. He wrote about grace. He wrote about grace and works and faith and deeds. And he wrote about the sin of partiality and 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 all he had to do was think about his own brother and go, man, was I like partial. Man, did I get it wrong. I made judgment on that situation I never should have made. So James says, you learn to close your mouth. You go about the work of the gospel. Then in verse seven, Paul tells us again that, that Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. Again, that's, that's the 12. I think that maybe that's like a reference to when he meets them in Galilee, these followers of Jesus who had scattered after his death. But then when Jesus was resurrected, they obeyed the command. They went to, the Gal- to Galilee because Jesus had told them that he would meet them there and he met them there. And then in verse eight, Paul says this. Look at verse eight. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, last of all, he's like, if I'm gonna do some accounting here of Jesus' appearances to people, I get to come last. Um, and I think that he's saying of himself, like last in, in value, that's where he placed himself. Now, it's interesting because sometimes we feel like that as Christians, we say, well, you know, I can understand how God could use that person. I understand how God can use that person, but not me. Like I have low value. I've done this. I've done that. God can't use me. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, last of all, the one of least value, the least of all the apostles, Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Blinded by light, knocked off of his high horse. Paul even cried out, who are you, Lord? He couldn't even recognize who Jesus was because he didn't know him. And Jesus said, it's me, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And Paul says about himself, he he calls himself there in verse eight, one untimely born, which is actually like uh, really watered down what the original language is saying. I want to tell you what Paul's saying. Paul actually is saying this. He's saying as one whom whom, whom should have never lived. Paul's actually saying this. If there's ever someone that, if there's ever a life that should have been aborted, it was me. I should have never lived. I lived an untimely life. And he says that because of verse nine. In verse nine, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, Paul says this, I never should have had life because I persecuted the church. You know, when when you read Paul's instruction in the scripture, he actually tells believers to pursue love, to to pursue loving one another. And we have to be instructed to do that in the word of God because loving one another isn't a natural thing. It's like, no, I come first. And so we have to be told, pursue love. Pursue the benefit of others. And this, this word that Paul uses here in verse 9 is the same idea. Think of uh, Dukes of Hazard. Any Dukes of Hazard fans out there? Remember Roscoe Pico Train? He's in hot pursuit of the Duke boys. And he's going to capture them. And Paul uses this language, be in a hot pursuit of love in other places because it doesn't come natural to you. But he uses this same word here. He says, I was in a hot pursuit of the church. I was persecuting followers of Jesus. Did you hear what happened in the news last night? In Sri Lanka? Suicide bombers went into churches in Sri Lanka 
and they blew themselves up. Not one church, multiple churches. Last night it happened. I think 200 are dead, 400 are injured. They're just worshiping like we are, just free people doing their thing. And they were murdered or injured. That was the heart of Paul. He was pursuing the people of God to destroy them. And before Christ, that's who Paul was, persecuting the bride of Christ. And, and Paul would, his word tells us that he would put a sword to them and he would make them blaspheme the name of, of Jesus. He would imprison people. He would persecute them. He would put them to death. The Bible tells us that in Acts the book of Acts, that he was pursuing them unto death. And, and this is the guy who says, pursue love. I pursued this. Now we have to turn and, and pursue love, follow love in the same way that I persecuted Christians. Now I, I, I pursued Jesus in the same way. And so we understand when Paul says, man, I was untimely born. I don't deserve to live. He's confessing. That because of the things he had done, because of his sin, when he, when he finally came to the place where he saw himself in the mirror, he realized, man, before God, I really don't have a, a right to have the spot that I have. And yet he says, but Jesus revealed himself to me. I spent years pointing my fingers at other people. And then I realized that rule. There's three pointing right back at me. He saw his sin saw the wretched man that he was. But God revealed grace to him. You know, that's why Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this sin? And the solution for Paul was not that he forfeit life. The solution for Paul was that he be born again, that he come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when you talk about being born again, you know, the word of God tells us that, well, well, it's been said this. It's been said this. If you are born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, born physically and born again, then you'll die once. The first is physical birth. The second is spiritual birth when we're born of the spirit because death is both physical and it's spiritual. And if a man is born of the second birth, a man or woman born of the spirit, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet shall he live. And so the gospel proclaimed to us is this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. This is the gospel that Paul came to pursue and put his faith in. He received Jesus. And the truth is the same for you and I. That if we'll receive Jesus, we repent from our sin, turn to him in faith, wave that white flag of surrender, accept the work of the cross, say, Jesus, I know you died in my place. I, I repent of my sin. I, I turn from my sin and I turn towards you in faith. I, I'm, I'm taking hold of your gospel. Then the word of God tells us we'll be, we'll be born again will experience that wonder and that miracle of rebirth and the wonder of regeneration. Paul said this in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not vain. Was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. I love that he says this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And you know, that's what you and I could say. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Everything, everything I have is his grace. His goodness to me. I, I, I don't deserve his favor towards me. You know, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. And so as we consider this text, Paul gives us these examples. He says, this, this is the gospel. Here's the gospel. That God loves us. That he sent his son and his son died on that cross in our place. 
Jesus was taken down from that cross. He was buried in the tomb, a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he was raised from the dead because death could not hold him down. He, he was victorious over death and sin and the devil. And the scripture tells us this, that if we will come to Jesus and repent of our sin and in faith turn towards him, we can experience the reality of new birth, to be born again. And when the day comes, just like Jesus, he's called the firstborn of the dead, just as he was resurrected from the dead, so we will experience the same pattern in our own hearts and in our own lives. And Paul says, there is evidence that is in front of you. Listen, if you're questioning the reality of the gospel, I want to tell you that there is evidence in front of you. It's in front of your face. There is evidence in front of your face. If you just say, well, you know, all I need is to see. All I need is proof. If God would just give me proof, then I would believe his gospel. I want to tell you, he's given you evidence. Here's the evidence that he's given you. The lives that are all around you in this room. If you don't believe in Jesus, I, I encourage you, you, you just pick someone in this room and begin to walk around here afterwards this morning and say, can you tell me how Jesus has transformed your life? I'm interested to know. And they'll tell you the testimony of how Jesus has transformed their life. You want more evidence? You just begin to search the scriptures. I encourage you to begin to search the scriptures and say, where's the evidence in the scriptures that give proof to the gospel? You want more evidence? Jesus put more evidence in front of your face. The witness of Peter, the witness of the apostles, the witness of the disciples, the witness of 500 people, the witness of Paul himself. They're, they're not here that we could have conversations with them, but their record and their testimony is available for us to read. There's so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and here's why. Because the gospel's true. The gospel's true. The gospel's true. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you did not leave yourself without witnesses. That the resurrection, your resurrection from the dead, the, the story of your cross, the story of your burial, it's like it didn't happen in a vacuum. People saw it. They experienced it. They, they watched your blood be shed. They watched a soldier stick a spear in your side. They physically put their hands on your body. They took you down from a cross. They wrapped you, placed you in a tomb, saw exactly where it was, saw the presence of soldiers, saw that it was sealed, questioned how will we roll the stone away because it's too large. When they came that morning, that Sunday morning to that empty tomb, they saw that stone rolled away. Angels were present declaring that you had been raised from the dead. You revealed yourself to people. You let them touch you. You let them put their fingers in your hands. You let them put their hands in your side. Jesus, you left evidence everywhere. You give us the evidence of transformed lives. You've given us the testimony of your scripture as evidence You've given the testimony of all these people who saw you over that period of time after you were raised from the dead before you ascended into heaven. Jesus, we thank you for evidence. We thank you, Jesus, that our faith and our relationship with you is not blind. It is not ignorant. It is educated. It is informed. And it has a foundation. And we trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus we believe in the cross. Jesus, we believe in your death and burial. And Jesus, we believe in your resurrection from the dead. Jesus, we believe what you declared, that if a man or woman shall put their faith in you, turn from their sin and turn in faith towards you, they will receive the gift, the grace of eternal life. And so Jesus, this morning, I, I just personally want to thank you that you've forgiven my sins. If I could be so bold as to speak on behalf of your people this morning, Lord, we thank you that you've forgiven our sins. Lord, we are grateful for the cross. 
We are grateful for your resurrection from the dead. And Lord, we proclaim our faith in the gospel. And Lord, would you strengthen our grip on the gospel? Paul instructed this church, don't don't believe these things in vain. So Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who do not believe these things in vain, that we would strengthen our grip on these truths and on these realities, on these things that are facts, Lord. And so Jesus, we thank you for salvation this morning in your name. You know, I just want to give this opportunity this morning. It's Resurrection Sunday. I'm going to ask every head be bowed, every eye closed, that you would just respect those around you. And maybe uh, you've come to join us this morning for worship. Maybe you're a regular. Maybe you've never been here before. And you're like, I don't know who Jesus is, and I don't know the truth of the gospel, but I hear this message of him being crucified and buried and raised from the dead. And if it's true and he can save me, then I want to put my faith in him. I want to tell you this. The scripture is very clear. You, you have to surrender your life to Jesus. You have to surrender to him. And surrender looks like this. It means this. It, it means a confession from your mouth where you say to Jesus, Jesus, I repent of my rebellion. I, re- I repent of my sin and I turn from my sin and I turn 180 degrees and I turn towards you. I, I'm going to turn from the life that seeks self and I'm going to turn to the life that seeks you and I'm going to surrender my life to you and I invite you to come into my life. I invite you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins and I invite you into my life. The word of God tells us that if you do that, if you believe in your heart the message of the gospel, and if you confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, the scripture just simply says this, you will be saved. Jesus will transform you. Your life will begin to change, and it won't be what you, you won't initiate it. You won't make it happen. His spirit will begin to work in you, and he'll begin to transform you, and you'll, you'll come to a place like Paul. You say, it's all grace. I never did anything. God saved me and he began to transform me. And so I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If you would like to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life, everybody's being very respectful and just got their eyes closed. If you raise your hand and just let me know, I'd love to pray with you, okay? And I won't point you out and I won't embarrass you, but I would love to pray with you. So I want to give you that opportunity. If you'd like to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life this morning. And you just raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. So, Lord, we give you glory and praise for your gospel this morning. We're so thankful, Jesus, that you have saved us from sin. Thankful, Lord, that we have the hope of resurrection. I I pray, God, that you'd give us skill to be able to articulate what we believe, Lord. May your spirit fill us with power and give us opportunity, even this day, Lord, to talk about the true meaning of Easter and Resurrection Sunday. God, we thank you for this time and for your people, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.